Policy matters. Policy matters. Policy matters. Policy matters. Policy matters. I am Jeffrey Hayes, your host for this episode of ASRM Policy Matters. Roe versus Wade has been overturned. To talk about some legal aspects of this is Dean Judith Darr. She is dean at Chase College of Law at Northern Kentucky University and was former chair of the ASRM Ethics Committee. Dean Darr, thank you so much for being on ASRM Policy Matters. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jeff. I'm pleased to be here and speak about what's going on and what might happen in the future. So in my few minutes here today, what I'd like to cover is the following. I'd like to give our listeners an overview of what the court did in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health and talk about the impact that the case might have both legally and practically on IVF and the ancillary practices that currently make up reproductive medicine. So with that brief outline, let me go ahead and proceed. On Friday, June 24th, 2022, as we know, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. And in so doing, they upheld a Mississippi law outlawing abortion after 15 weeks gestation. But in addition to upholding this law, the court also overruled Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, longstanding precedents that established the constitutional right Uh, for women to access abortion and to control their pregnancies. So after this decision, no longer is there a constitutional protection for this kind of medical treatment. And therefore the states individually can make decisions about whether abortion is available uh, or restricted in the various jurisdictions. Now, A lot of uh, people ask me as a law professor, how can it be that such a longstanding precedent that was relied upon by literally generations of of women and men uh, could go down and could fall in one case in which six of nine justices agree and three, of course, dissent? And that takes a little bit more time than we have here today. But I think just to address that, I want to speak about this notion of stare decisis. It's a core and longstanding judicial principle that cases that have been decided will stand. And the reason that stare decisis is so important for American law is that it's a beacon for stability and reliability of the way that we regard ourselves in a civil society. Um, Our founders essentially adopted and anticipated that stare decisis would solidify us as leaders in a legal regime, and it's certainly done that. But it doesn't mean that every decision will stand forever and that it can never be overturned. And it's really up to the court and their discretion to decide when a precedent should be overturned. And this six person majority decided that this was the right time for this issue. And the way they did it is to interrogate the 14th amendment to the US constitution, which is a post reconstruction era amendment. Um, and specifically the 14th Amendment's language that provides that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. In the past, in Roe and in Casey, and actually in a number of other cases, the liberty clause, this notion of liberty, has been interpreted to protect certain intimate decision-making, including the rights surrounding abortion. Well, this court Uh, looking at that language and looking at prior precedents with their own interpretation said that 
liberty is not sufficient to protect this right in a constitutional manner. The court said that there is no history and tradition in the nation of abortion access, uh, despite the 50 years that we've had to the contrary, nor is there any notion of ordered liberty, as the court said, uh, in providing access to abortion. And so for that reason, the court said that prior reasoning uh, in Roe and other cases um, just did not hold up under current scrutiny. And what's interesting and important as I move in a shift to the next part of my talk about what is its impact on IVF is to note the very strong language that the court used in distinguishing the Dobbs decision from other decisions in which the liberty interest has been relied upon to protect intimate decision-making, specifically in cases re regarding access to contraception and uh, the right to marry, particularly the right to same-sex marriage established in 2015 by the Supreme Court. And what Justice Alito in his majority opinion says in Dobbs is that all of these other cases that rely on liberty are different because this case involves potential life and involves unborn human beings. And anybody familiar with IVF knows that that is certainly the case with this amazing and life-giving medical practice. So let's move then to what does Dobbs mean for uh, ART moving forward? Well, let's talk legally about the future. Currently, 26 states, half of our country, have so-called trigger laws, uh, laws that either already have or shortly will become effective, and they will ban abortion in most cases um, in those jurisdictions. We will have then um, a reproductive tourism where patients are going to have to move from states and regions to access care and um, support groups are already at play trying to provide travel and resources for those moves because in fact, the US will be a checkerboard when it comes to abortion. Now, in the future, laws that touch on abortion are very likely to be upheld because what the court did in Dobbs is it reduced the standard that a court would use to analyze laws that touch on abortion. Prior to Dobbs, if a state enacted an abortion regulation, the Supreme Court said that it had to be evaluated by the court with strict scrutiny and that the legislature had to provide a compelling state interest in order for the law to move forward. That's no longer true. Now, any law touching on abortion only has to have a rational basis. And this standard of review, the rational basis standard, means that laws are presumptively valid. The presumption is in favor of the legislature and almost any justification that the legislature provides will be sufficient to allow the law to meet constitutional muster. So that's going to be true with respect to abortion laws. The question is, what about laws that touch on IVF. All right, so let's let's move to to IVF. As a practical matter, currently most states laws that talk about and restrict abortion do not talk about IVF. They really don't talk about even anything that is within the realm of IVF. Most states abortion laws talk about pregnancy pregnancy termination, removing the fetus from the woman's uterus, ending a pregnancy, and so on. And these terms, in a plain meaning analysis, should not extend to IVF in the sense of embryos being created in a laboratory 
being tested in a laboratory for their genetic health, being frozen in storage tanks uh, across the country, because none of that is pregnancy related. There's no attachment of the embryo to the uterus, which is the traditional both medical as well as legal definition of pregnancy. So the immediate impact of all of these trigger laws on IVF seems to be minimal in that pregnancy is referenced in the laws, but is not activated in IVF. However, and as a lawyer, I'm always working on the however, looking at the exceptions. Some of the laws are ambiguous as it, as it relates to IVF. So for example, in one state, Utah, the definition of abortion is the killing of an unborn human child. And in that state, at least in parts of the legislation, that definition is untethered from pregnancy. It doesn't say that the unborn child has to be located in the woman's body. And that worries me. Now, I know, I, I feel certain that the law was not enacted to reach into IVF, but the plain meaning analysis in which abortion is defined as the killing of an unborn human being lines up with what Justice Alito said is so compelling in the Dobbs decision. He and the majority agreed that the protection of the unborn human being over the really the objection and the interests of the pregnant woman were paramount. So if abortion in Utah doesn't require pregnancy, and again, I'm only working up what the language is. I'm not saying this is what a court would decide, only providing the possibility. If it's unrelated to pregnancy, then embryo cryopreservation, which can uh, have a, a negative impact on embryos, usually not, but can, but certainly discard of embryos, either after PGT reveals a genetic anomaly or patients have completed their families or have decided not to pursue further treatment, all reasons that surround embryo discard could be at jeopardy. And I'm, I'm worried, I'm not panicked, uh, but I am a little worried about how these laws will apply because after all, an advocate who finds abortion abhorrent could also find IVF abhorrent. We know there are, there are foes because of the um, way in which embryos are formed outside the body and the way that they are discarded somewhat routinely as is uh, attendant to a safe and effective practice of IVF. And so an argument that in states that untether abortion regulation from pregnancy, IVF practices could be jeopardized. Now, moving forward, should states decide to enact laws that specifically address IVF, which currently do not exist. Currently, IVF really does enjoy a laissez-faire or hands-off attitude from the law in, in many respects. Certainly, there's no regulation of how many embryos can be transferred, how many can be cryopreserved, for how long can PGT move forward. It's all really, at this point, within the privacy of the patient-physician relationship. But given the uh, this, the, the, the real boost that the Supreme Court gave to the notion of potential life, there could move forward attempts to regulate IVF. For example, restrictions on cryopreservation. For example, um, a, a law might say that all the embryos that are formed have to be transferred because to freeze them uh, and certainly to discard them, it harms them. What about a law that provided that? Well, before Friday, I would have said to you, oh, that law would never be upheld because it's very similar to, to Roe in that it, it invokes reproductive freedom and we have a strict scrutiny analysis and there's no real compelling state interest compared to the individual interests of the patients. 
but I can't say that today. Today, a law is going to be evaluated under a rational basis test. Any rationalization that the legislature advances is likely to be upheld. So since we have no deeply rooted history and tradition of protecting IVF in this country, any laws that move forward are very likely to be upheld. So uh, that's, that's one analysis. Um, another just small point, but I think this is important, is um, that the Supreme Court has talked not just about abortion, but has also talked about medical decision-making in a decision in 1990. So it dates back to the time when actually Casey Planned Parenthood case was being decided. The court said in a decision called Cruzan versus Missouri Health Department that a competent adult patient has a liberty interest in refusing unwanted medical care. And this decision was about end-of-life care and not taking extraordinary measures to extend one's life when natural processes could take effect. And the court celebrated the liberty that patients have in making decisions about their health care. And so I might have thought prior to Friday, well, you know, maybe IVF patients will enjoy this same liberty to make decisions about their, their care. But again, the Dobbs majority says not so fast. The liberty interest here is related to the notion of protecting this potential life, their liberty, the unborn human being, that uh, liberty interest. And so I don't know that the normal um, thoughts that we have about patient autonomy are going to apply in this case. All right, so what can we do moving forward? Well, one thing that we want to pay attention to is how courts would interpret the current laws on IVF. Again, most of them talk about pregnancy termination, seem to be safe from encompassing IVF practices, and I think that's true in most states. Uh, the ones that are ambiguous, we will have to see how the courts interpret those laws. What about advocacy in the legislative realm? Well, there's at least two avenues that advocates for IVF might take. Number one, they might advocate for a carve-out for IVF in abortion regulation and talk to the legislature about how concerned they are that the language could pull in IVF and ask the legislature to accept or specifically expressly say the law doesn't apply to IVF. A second route is to lobby for, advocate for specific regulation that protects access to IVF. And given the political scene surrounding IVF compared to abortion, I, I think it's fair to say that there's more support for IVF, given that um, two out of every 100 children born in the U.S. today uh, are born through IVF. We have over 8 million children world, worldwide, many happy, joyous families who celebrate their IVF children. Um, and so it's a politically very different arena. And for that reason, we might be able to, to get regulation. Um, but I want to just end with sort of two cautionary notes. One is somewhat practical and the other is just in a way philosophical. The practical comment is be careful what we wish for. I worry a little bit that going to the legislature and explaining really in detail how IVF works will expose some people really for the first time to the notion that embryo discard is routine and is even necessary um, as a part of effective IVF. And so I, I worry that the legislature is kind of finding out more and more about IVF could in fact have more reason to be 
concern and to put greater restrictions on its use. So, so that's one cautionary tale that's, that's practical. The philosophical has a little bit more to do with health equity, particularly reproductive health equity as it relates to women and racial stratification. Um, I think it's well known that in the United States, the majority of patients who seek IVF are white. In the United States, it's also well known that the majority of patients who seek abortions um, are women of color. And there's just some very uncomfortable juxtaposition of laws that now restrict the reproductive freedoms of women of color and uh, women uh, who are not of color, who are in the majority, uh, who are white women would seek out special and, and enhanced treatment to protect their reproductive choice uh, decision-making. And I'm not really commenting on whether that should move forward in that way, but just, I think it's important for us to, to know that this is a very deeper question. And in addition to access to abortion care, there's a lot of equity and reproductive justice themes that are yet to be explored. Thank you so much for this opportunity. My guest today was Dean Judith Dar. She is Dean at the Chase College of Law at Northern Kentucky University and also served as chair of the ASRM Ethics Committee. I wish to thank you, everyone at ASRM. Thanks you for your time, your expertise in sharing all that you just said with our membership. Dean Dar, again, thank you so much for being able to be on the show today. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate it. I am Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Policy Matters. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.